you know, as a marathoner, it can be real daunting to be thinking about miles 24, 25, and 26 throughout the race. And, uh, and if you're thinking about mile 25 and 26, and you're only in mile three or four, you're dead in the water. And, um, you know, translating that to life, tempting to want to try to figure out everything, you know, for the next 10, 20 years of our lives. And really all we can do is faithfully run the mile that we're in, pay attention to what's right in front of us, stay focused on that, and do it with great love. This is Living As You. Here's your host, PQ. It's time for another Living As You conversation and some PQ energy. Today on Living As You, we bring to you a one-of-a-kind gladiator of compassion. Greg Carpinello is a father of three, an avid runner, and the executive director of the Pacific Northwest Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Whether discerning our human purpose or bringing others together to take actionable steps towards change, Greg's commitment to helping others discern their path in life is a true gift. Enjoy an adventurous conversation about asking the challenging questions, converting our hearts, and cultivating presence in our lives today. Let's do this. Greg, how you doing? Hey, Patrick. It's so good to, to finally meet you virtually. Amen. How are you? I'm hanging in there. How about you? I'm doing, I'm doing quite well. I'm trying to get out there like you in the midst of the pandemic and run, run, run. That's what we do. Come on. Are you getting your runs in these days? Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, I had a meeting canceled at noon today, so I went out for a quick seven-miler. Quick seven mile. You're doing that in probably 35 minutes, half an hour, perhaps. <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> so, so, Greg, I'd love to start things off today by jumping into the concept of social justice, especially mm -hmm. because of the way it's been a huge part of your life. From an early age, was social justice something you thought much about? Well, we're starting off hot. I like it. Yeah, you know, Patrick, it, it didn't really, social justice didn't really get into my radar and really till I was in undergrad in college. I had a, what most would, would call a pretty standard upbringing. I did the, the public school thing. I had my friends that uh, were the center of my universe. I played sports through high school and um, I wasn't thinking a ton about the world outside of my little bubble. Not, not uncommon. And uh, so it wasn't really until, until Xavier, uh, my undergrad days there in Cincinnati, that, uh, that I first started to ask questions and pay attention to the, the realities that other people live in. And so that was, you know, that was life altering, but not something that was really like part of, part of my upbringing before that. So, so tell me a little bit more about your time at Xavier. Obviously, you were studying English to theology to peace studies, and you got a master's degree in pastoral ministry at BC. But take me through that, that first 
kind of couple moments when you're at Xavier, you're in Ohio and you're starting to look at, as you said, social justice in a whole new light. Faith was my pathway. I grew up Catholic and um, it was important to me, but I was a public school kid. And so it was fairly compartmentalized for me. And when I got to Xavier, for the record, I, I pushed being an undecided major for about as long as you could really feasibly do it. <laughs> I, I was in that searching and discerning phase, honestly, for my first year and a half at Xavier. But it was during that time that actually outside the classroom, I was starting to catch fire. And it started with a, really a retreat that I went on very early in my, my sophomore year. My first year was okay there, but not too unlike many college students, I, I left that first year wondering if, if Xavier was the place for me and uh, feeling like, gosh, you know, I, my, my high school days were better than this. And so, yeah, I don't know where this is all going to go. But early sophomore year, right after I decided to, to go back for a year or two, I uh, went on a retreat that really kind of cracked me open and, you know, really started to understand the concept of listening to my life. And that was a powerful weekend experience that then turned into uh, a lot of listening in other kinds of ways that I, I had not previously been used to in my life. Uh, and when I did that, bit by bit, step by step, I got led to really different people and different experiences that started to just crack open my world even more. And it was through that that eventually I got into experiences and, and classes. Wow. So bring me into some of those classes or events, or as you put it beautifully, those moments when you started catching fire. I love that. Into, okay, tell Greg, take me through some of those classes and moments that you felt like that was the catapult to you starting to unlock those conversations and those questions that now have brought you to making a huge impact in this world. It's really important for me to talk about my retreat experiences because, you know, those are very clear moments in my memory where literally the concept is you remove yourself from the everyday grind, right? And you, by doing so, you can see your life and the world around you through a new lens. And, you know, so many retreat experiences for me at Xavier were about that, like re-looking at, at circumstances in my own life, hearing from other people uh, in different parts of the world that didn't live like me. You know, so, so you know, these are going to span a long period of time, but understanding the idea of a God that is all loving and a God that is, that is about forgiveness. I think I had a retreat experience that really allowed me to to experience that, not just intellectually, but sort of like a, a body felt sense of that. Later on in, in my journey, um, I went to El Salvador with a group. Uh, this is in my professional life, but went to a group of students from Boston College when I was working there to El Salvador. And I'll never forget that experience because it was, uh, it was an immersion in just a radically different uh, reality than I was ever used to. And you know, the, those conversations and the, the people that I met there um, left an imprint on me that, that would, I think, solidify a trajectory in my own life that, that I couldn't have had otherwise. I had a class with a Jesuit professor about ethics, and he 
he pushed us all to think really hard about really difficult circumstances and, and who we are amidst those and what we're called to be about amidst those. And so, gosh, you know, that's just a handful, but like step after step of just kind of like deepening this practice of paying attention and asking really hard questions. Yeah. And I think that right there is like the, the fundamental basis, at least that I've been able to kind of discern of this whole college experience or mm. even just opportunity to learn in general. I think we, we all go to school for, of course, you want to get a degree and get educated with the classes and that's all nice. But I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, okay, what's stopping me from taking four years and saving all that money and staying in my home and just using Google and all of these resources online. Yeah. Most of them are free yeah. to learn physics, math, science, ethics. Anyone could. And so right. what you're saying that I'd love for you to touch upon a little bit more is when you're in that college setting and, and hopefully everyone on this earth has that opportunity to surround themselves with people in a community that allows them to engage in these conversations, mm -hmm. to ask questions, to challenge people, to have meaningful dialogue. How has that shaped your life thus far? This, this concept of meaningful conversation, maybe even in light of your experience in El Salvador. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, there was a, a distinct moment in that trip that sticks out to me that kind of captures what you're talking about. Uh, there's a Jesuit named Dean Brackley. And Dean was a guy, he was a Jesuit priest who um, up and left his American ministry here in the States to go down to El Salvador shortly after some Salvadoran Jesuit priests were assassinated. And this was in the late 80s, late 1980s, amidst you know, civil war there. And those Jesuit priests were working at the Jesuit college down there. They were really speaking out quite a bit about the atrocities that they were seeing that the government was, that the government was responsible for. And uh, you know, just a lot of oppression of especially poor marginalized folks in that country. And the Jesuits were speaking out about it and it got them murdered and it was done by the army there. And so Dean, right after this happened, Dean went down there to live his life because he felt a call to be there and to serve the people of El Salvador. So when I'm down there, uh, this would have been 2009. I was down there uh, with a group of BC students and I'll never forget the conversation we had with him. He talked about our group being social capital and really unpacked for us that by the privilege of our education, the privilege of our ability to see what we could see in El Salvador and other places in the, in the world, to study systems in the world and how they work, that really our lives were, were really then now meant to be at the service of humanity. And that like, that knocked my socks off. Right. And, and I was I'm, at this point, I'm in my um, I'm what, like I'm almost 30 at this point. But these college students, you know, are, are really in the thick of this really important era of their lives where, you know, some of the choices they make right now in the years of, the, you know, being 20, 21, 22 years old, that it's in this moment where they could really set a direction for themselves of great consequence one way or another. And so I thought it was really powerful for them to be in conversation. It was powerful for me at 30, but even especially for them 
to be in conversation with somebody like Dean Brackley and to hear that maybe their purpose in life needed to be oriented towards this thing called the common good, that their life was gonna be meant, that it had to be lived and meant to be lived in service to other people. And so, um, you know, that's what I hear you talking about is that like, you've got this chance right now. We've all, you know, we've all got these moments in our lives where the path diverges and we can go a couple of different ways uh, but that there's a calling to purpose somewhere that we've got to listen to. And it's not the same for everybody, but boy, you know, we got we to gotta listen to it when we hear it. I couldn't have said it better myself. To me, it sounds like that, that experience in El Salvador and this particular conversation and moment of this discernment and this purpose, this was a, a really defining moment that you started to kind of get that sense of your own purpose. Is that the case? I think so, but but as with most things in life, you know, there were seeds that were planted years and years back, and and really ten years prior. And that, you know, my my years at, at Xavier were as an undergrad, ninety seven to two thousand one, and you know, it were it was the seeds that were planted then that allowed me to hear in two thousand nine those words from Dean Brackley. And uh, and so, you know, I think that's important, at least uh, an important theme in my own life is that any epiphany I've ever had or any really defining moment I've ever had in my own life has really been the culmination of many other smaller moments. <laughs> and that, you know, without those, the 2009 experience wouldn't have happened. And so plenty of things happened in between, you know, let's call it 99 and 2009 that, uh, that allowed me to hear that. But certainly, you know, a lot of these moments and that one in El Salvador solidify for me, this path that I've, that I've slowly been on, which is, you know, just trying to figure out where I'm, I'm best used in the world and, and where I can devote my energy and time and attention, privilege for something bigger than myself. Un- unbelievable. I want to diving off in- into another topic based on everything you just shared. The idea of witnessing injustice, the idea of witnessing pain in this world, Mm. no one, I mean, I don't know anyone that likes to encounter systematic injustice, racism, pain, oppression, because these are these things that we as as humans work every single day of our life to say no more. Even if we are able to turn the needle a little bit, that's why, I mean, it sounds to me, as, as I try and live my life, that is my mission on this earth, to do whatever I can to slowly shift that. Yep. And one of my friends, at, being at Notre Dame, and we, like you at Xavier, we had a whole host of experiences getting to, to witness pain and oppression and, and have these, like you had in El Salvador, just remarkably life-changing and altering experiences. And I had a conversation one day with one of my friends who had gotten back from uh, an experience uh, at the border, the southern border of the U.S., and he just witnessed oh, horrific pain, horrific oppression, families being torn apart, just awful. And he just sat there with me one night. It was maybe 11 p.m. and we're sitting outside in South Bend, beautiful sunny night. And he just says, "Patrick, like, I just don't know what can I do. I've witnessed mm-hmm. such pain. I've witnessed such oppression. How can I? I'm sitting here in South Bend, Indiana, with so much privilege." In, in gifts, what can I do? And that the idea of being a witness to someone's pain, being a witness and simply by being there and choosing not to forget, 
but to act and ultimately let your future actions, words, values, feelings, whatever, be shaped by those experiences like you talked about in El Salvador, to me, that has been like something I've thought about mm. for the last several years. I don't know if that's something that you've thought about because I think it's very easy, Greg, in this world to witness pain, to witness all this and think, what can I do? I'm only yeah. one person. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that idea of being one person, but recognizing that, yes, you are one person, you can make a difference in this world. Any thoughts on that? Oh, it's on. I mean, I think you're, you're, you're at the heart of, of what we're talking about here in the quest for social justice. It's tempting in our society to try to fix everything all at once, right? And there's a lie that our society tells us. And, and that lie is, it is about, about saving other people. And then that's what we're called to do. There's a lie about independence, right? That's an independent thinking kind of approach to social justice, to think that like, I need to have the answer. I need to be the one that saves the day. And yet what I think is at the heart of any social justice movement is this concept of togetherness, that, that it's only together that we can kind of conquer the, the human created suffering that we see in the world today. And I think that's an important distinction too, right? To be human is to suffer. You and I will suffer no matter what, because we walk on this earth and we are who we are. We will suffer, right? People will die in our lives and that will break our hearts. Disasters will happen. And you know, this, these will be sufferings that we endure. And there are also sufferings in this world that are human created. Racism is a created, human created system, you know? So to think anything but this idea that like connected, we, we can conquer that, I think is, is leading us down the wrong path. And so the importance of experiences like these, of, of seeing um, other places in the world, other, meeting other people in the world, it's important because it converts our hearts. And, and only by our heart, like we can think our way, you know, any which way in the world, right? But that thinking about a new world and new structures and new systems has to be accompanied by a change in heart. And that change in heart happens, I think, most substantially in encountering other people and being converted to love and being converted to solidarity. And so it's in that act of being converted and then joining movements that aren't about, you know, me, uh, but about us, that we can kind of conquer, conquer these big, big systems that, that feel huge and enormous and like make us feel really small. Like, how could I ever? right? How could I ever tackle X, Y, or Z? But, you know, in that togetherness, you know, we find purpose and we find our, our small purpose that adds up to a big purpose. But that takes a lot of listening and a lot of patience. We're not good at that in our, in our culture. Our culture is instant gratification, you know, so we've got we've to learn. We've got to learn how to, to go beyond that long haul, finding that purpose uh, before we start to see and, and realize answers. No question. No question. Would you be willing to share a moment or a particular story from your life in which you felt a part of a bigger movement when you came together with maybe a group of people, whether it was in Cincinnati or, or thus far out here in Oregon, even during this pandemic, the last eight months, nine months you've been out here, that really shaped your life and, and your concept of social justice being a communal effort? 
Great question. Yeah, you know, uh, again, I'll, I'll talk about a seed that was planted a long time ago. And then, you know, where I actually felt like that seed grew, grew in my life. When I was at Xavier as an undergrad, senior year, 2001, in Cincinnati, kid a few years younger than me at that point. So I was, you know, 20 years old, 18 year old Timothy Thomas was chased by police in Cincinnati, in urban Cincinnati, unarmed, Timothy Thomas, unarmed, and uh, shot and killed in the back as he ran from the police. In 2001, this caused an uproar, rightfully so, in the black community of Cincinnati. As a privileged white college student, all I knew was seeing it from afar. And all I knew was about the citywide curfew. And I kind of went about my business and obeyed the curfew and finished my senior year without too much real wrestling with, with what was going on there at that time. Now you fast forward, let's see what would have been like 14, 15 years. And I'm working, I'm working at Xavier now. And Mike Brown is killed in, in Ferguson, Missouri. And um, I'm a different person at this stage in my life. And I've been thinking about systems. I've been thinking about uh, human created suffering. Uh, I've been thinking about movements for social change. And there was a moment there when I watched the video of Mike Brown getting shot and you know, everything that went down in Ferguson after that with uh, the, the righteous uproar there in that community, um, the subsequent acquittal of the, the cops that, that shot Mike Brown. And that was a moment of both for me, gosh, this is a, this is a bad system. There's something wrong here, this is not right. Racism's at play, and our laws need to be re-looked at. Our laws need re-examination. And, and, and so depressing in that way, but also um, hope-filled. And the hope-filled piece of that story for me was listening to the voices of Black students at Xavier. It was uh, listening to the voices of Black faculty at Xavier. Understanding in a, in a, in a fresh way the primacy of the Black voice and the Black experience in the fight against racism and, and racist systems. And so, and, and that's what, and that's kind of been part of my own conversion to uh, this concept of a movement towards social justice that, you know, Patrick, I don't think I'm the guy that needs to be the, the figurehead for racial justice and equality in our country. But do I have a very important part to play? Absolutely. And so, yeah, like kind of like your friend, uh, what am I to do? Like, this is overwhelming. I've, I've been there, but I also look around daily and can see a little influence I have here in the organization that I lead. Uh, a little influence I have here on the block where I live and the conversations I'm having with neighbors. I have this influence here with my family that didn't grow up talking about this kind of stuff to say, hey, here's something that I'm thinking about and something that I'm reflecting on and something that I'm trying to do in the world. You know, and those are the little things. Those are the, those are the calls and, um, and the little um, invitations to purpose and, and joining these kinds of movements that I'm talking about that, that I've found to be really powerful, right? I don't, need to, I don't need to be the MLK speech giver. I don't need to be the one leading the charge uh, somewhere in, in, in downtown Portland, but 
I have an important role to play and I've got to figure what, figure out what that is every day of my life and play it as best I can. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, understanding our privilege, um, those of us who, that have it in, in the world. So true. So in, I think that idea right there of doing the very best you can with what you have, that has been something so much that I resonated with the entire time you were sharing about that powerful experience when you were a senior at Xavier. And then obviously when you were, when you were, um, when Ferguson happened and the other day I was walking around our neighborhood on a, on, on a, on a walk. And I simply just, it was, it was a rainy day, cloudy. Obviously we're in the midst of a pandemic. It, it's fall, super gray outside and I'm, and I'm walking and I just start thinking, okay, like, I don't usually think about this very much, but what, like, what's the meaning of life? What is a life well lived? And these are big questions and I don't, I don't dwell on them very much, but I think it's really important sometimes to think about it, and especially in light of social injustice. What is a life well lived? What is a life that when you die, whether it's tomorrow, 80 years, 100 years, who knows? What is a life that you can look back on and feel proud and feel as though, man, I did everything I could like to, to use the, fully use the gifts and privilege that I have to have made this world a better place. And for everyone, that's different. And I'm not, this, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, there's one fulfilling life for this one. No, no. Everyone has to take that discernment and that time to figure that out for themselves. But as I was walking around yesterday, or the other day, I should say, I, I was sitting and, and I, was, I was walking and thinking, and we all have our challenges. We all see challenge. We all see oppression. We all see social injustice all over this world. And to me, as I was walking and thinking about, okay, what is a life that maybe I'm going to be proud to look back on whenever I leave this earth, whether it's tomorrow, a week, whenever. And you said this in, in, in a beautiful quote. You said a couple of years ago when you were at Xavier, I'm going to read this and, and tell you why I'm reading it. I can attest that it is more wise to hold pain and suffering in our lives and to transform it instead of trying to avoid it and repress it. And when I was doing my homework for our interview and I read this the other day, Greg, this was the seed that started planting uh, this, this, this questioning on this walk. Because when I was sitting there or when I was walking and I started thinking, what, to me, Patrick Quinn, what is a life well lived? It wasn't a, oh, try and make everything perfect or repress the challenges, let them go. It was instead the idea of presence and the idea of becoming one with those moments of, of joy and, and, and peace and fulfillment. It's these ideas of, okay, when those days are blue, when those days are suck and when you're feeling awful, it's not pushing that away. It's being one. It's, it's embracing that. If you're present every moment, no matter how painful, no matter how joyous, what more could anyone want from this, what more can any human being be? As you said, being still, listening, being present to the moment. How has presence shaped your life? Because you planted that seed for me. <laughs> well, thanks, uh, man. You're you're onto deep stuff here. Uh, you know, and, and there's something important about presence. I I hate to keep harping on our our culture, but I think it's really important, Patrick. By and large we are bombarded with messages and influences our entire lives that really are orchestrated to get us not to pay attention to here and now, right? 
I look back at my own life and, and I've been trained to kind of think my way through life and to strategize and to seek comfort and independence and control over my life. And as a white, straight male, things are pre-programmed for me to be able to do that and do it pretty successfully. I think my spiritual journey has been undoing, unlearning a lot of these ways of being in the world. And, and that it, it has really been unlearning so that I can therefore learn how to be present to my life uh, that's right in front of me. You know, so you, I think about myself, I, I, I've spent a ton of my mental energy in life, either looking back or looking ahead, either looking back or looking ahead. Connectedness and meaning and, and purpose you know, I think we lose those things if we spend too much time looking back and looking ahead. Now, good to be reflective on, on where we've been, learn a lot about where we've been. And, uh, and it's good to have dreams. I'm not saying that. But, you know, on a daily basis, uh, our best teacher is right in front of us. Our circumstances that are, that are our everyday lives, you know, that's, that's where uh, our greatest life teacher is. And, and I think often, I've at least been distracted from that, that best teacher. Too much energy in the past and the future. Presence is important because um, can you really be in love? Can you live a loving life without being present? I'm not sure. And if we're, if we're not present to that which is around us in the moment, how can we be in love with it? How can we be in love with the people around us? Uh, how can we use our gifts and talents for the, the betterment of the world if we're, if we're not present to that reality? So, uh, so yeah, that's been a journey I've, I've been on. I, I certainly don't have it all, all correct, but um, yeah, and, and that too, I mean, you, you said it, but um, I have to reiterate, that includes the pain and the suffering, and, and maybe more importantly, the, the pain and the suffering, we got to pay attention to it, and when we don't, you know, it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be in when we don't pay attention to it and try to either avoid it or when we do run into it to uh, suppress it. So true. Would you mind sharing maybe a defining moment in your life of either great presence or a moment that you felt like you were fully able to fall in love and stay in love? Well, you know, I'm thinking about one one particular story from my early parenthood days, and you, you've jogged this memory for me by bringing up this uh, great Jesuit concept of uh, staying in love. That, that comes from a former, uh, now deceased Jesuit named Pedro Arupe, who I'm actually not sure if he actually penned this, but this is a poem attributed to him, but he talks about falling in love and then staying in love and that deciding basically everything in life, what you fall in love with decides, you know, everything in your life. And for me, that, that really became clear to me as a young parent. I, my, my firstborn uh, came in 2012. My, uh, my secondborn came uh, almost two years later, but in 2013. And um, there was a night where uh, my oldest, Andrew, was sick. Pardon the, the imagery here, but I'm talking like just vomiting everywhere. Like, just disgusting. And I do not do well. Uh, Patrick, I do not do well with, with the medical stuff. I do not do well with, uh, with the vomiting and all of that. Just poor guy is just sick as all get out. 
and his younger brother is a, is, is a newborn. And so obviously like always constantly in need of something. Like I remember working seamlessly with, with Mara that night to take care of both of them. And that's, that's what, that's what life asked of us that night. And, and, you know, we were up into the wee hours of, of the night, much like any other parent uh, would have been in the same situation. And so, um, you know, I don't bring that up to like pat myself on the back or, or ask for a gold medal, but, but I bring it up because it was this moment for me where, you know, this is what love calls us to. It, it calls us to self-sacrifice and it calls us to even when, you know, the, the not so fun stuff comes up, we're called to stay in love and, and staying in love is an active choice. Falling in love is to a degree out of our control. You know, like think about that in, in your own life, the things or the people you've fallen in love with. You know, that, that stuff just happens to us and there's some mystery around it. You know, why, why some things and not others? Why some subjects, not others? Why some people, not others? And yet the, the follow-up of, of staying in love is a radical choice. And I say radical because again, in our, in our world today, it, it's very easy and I think very tempting for us to cut and run when, when the going gets tough. So staying in love that night for me looked like, you know, giving up whatever plans I had, you know, uh, working together with my wife on, on cleanup and, uh, and caretaking, letting sick boys, you know, rest their heads on our shoulders, even though we were tired and exhausted and work had piled up and the dishes had piled up. That for me was an experience of, yeah, I got to choose. I want to choose this. I want to choose this because there's, there's something deeper here and, and something more powerful than me that I'm being invited into. And, um, you know, honestly, you know, there's not a day that goes by and this pandemic has exacerbated it where there's a daily choice to stay in love with lots of things, the quest for racial justice, the, the journey as a parent, being a good friend. You know, these, these are constantly choices we're all given in our lives to stay in love. And um, it's not always easy, but, but there's an invitation there. And on the other side of that invitation, I think is the gateway to, uh, to meaning and purpose and joy. And that's the kind of stuff that we seek. So you put that so well. And it's funny to me because when I was reading a, a beautiful blog post that you put out, I think about 10 years ago, on the idea of falling in love, but staying in love, I started thinking about how our society loves the concept of falling in love. You look, at, you look at the movies, you look at the advertisements, you look at the social media, it's all about who you fall in love with tomorrow. You gotta get on that thing. And the idea of staying in love, it's like, who talks about that? Who, I mean, it's all about the, the big wedding, the honeymoon. And then it's like, oh yeah, we have to live with each other. Like, it's really, Something, as you mentioned, that our society has chosen at the moment to not prioritize. And I think at the end of the day, you've talked about so beautifully, staying in love, that's the, that's the essence of love. Mm. The, the magic, and, and it's beautiful, of falling in love. I think that emotion, that feeling is out of this world. How do you even describe that? But there's something so powerful, I think, that you talked about that night, that sustained love, that choice, that commitment. That it, it's it's like a it's you're building that foundation a ground and, and like that moment you experience that night where you're with your kids and you're with Mara, your wife, it's like you were building the foundation 
out of brick and cement and solidifying like that, that ground that you're living your life on where that falling in love. Sometimes I feel like it's, if we, if we try and build that ground upon that feeling and that emotion, I don't know, that sand right there might, might give way in our life. So thank you for sharing that. Amazing. When you think about our current world and the idea of obviously we're in a time right now of the pandemic and we're, we're all going through a lot of that adversity. How do we build that solid ground? Fantastic question. You know, I don't know if it's rocket science. I don't know if it's all that complicated. I think it starts with seeing each other. There's so much polarization today, politicization of, of so much in the world. And I, you know, gosh, and how do we, how do we create like a unified front against this virus is, I don't know if that's the exact question you're asking, but that's kind of what I'm thinking of when you're, when you're asking about how do we build a foundation? How do we do, you know, how do we lead meaningful lives in, in the midst of a pandemic? Well, I, I think it's recognizing each other and recognizing that we are connected. And boy, if there's, if there's no better proof, unfortunately, that we're all connected, it's this virus, right? Like, you know, we, we are a communal people. We live and share this earth together and we are connected, whether people like it or not. And so um, I think it starts with seeing each other and understanding how my actions and my choices impact others and listening to, um, to other people and their pain and their suffering and their joys and their hopes. And, uh, and so that listening, you know, is, is key right now. And, you know, to, to harken back to one of our previous conversations here, you know, it's, it's only going to be in a movement of coordinated, concerted effort, human effort against this virus that, that we're actually going to be. We need, the, we need the smart people who are doctors that are creating vaccines, doing their best work. We need leaders speaking up and making hard choices when those are, need to be made. We need, we need committed people who can honestly just follow some orders. And, and even when it's inconvenient, make some personal choices for the, the good of the whole. You know? and, and all of that, though, I think starts with uh, willingness to uh, listen to each other, to face each other, even, as, even if it's through a screen, to read and, and understand what's going on in the world out there even while we're all stuck at home, to listen and discern and, and hear those cries of the poor that are out there that are being most affected by this and really start to think and act collectively instead of as, uh, as these independent agents out there. Uh, people who, um, unfortunately, you know, uh, it's too easy to make choices that uh, only impact me and myself and my family. But uh, if we want to beat this thing, we've got to join together. So big. I couldn't agree more. And Greg, how cool is it? You have this opportunity now with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps to solidify and, and help everyone you send out in, in the Pacific Northwest. You're helping solidify that foundation to, hey, we're doing this together. Tell me about your work with the, with the JVC Northwest so far. I know it's been quite difficult as this whole year has been for everyone. Paint me a picture of what the work is like and how you're shaping these, these future leaders of our world. Two things come, come to mind right off the bat and then I can, I can expound. First, I love it. I'm passionate about this program. Uh, I've known about it for a very long time. I had friends in college that 
that came out to the Pacific Northwest and, and did a year of service through JVC Northwest. Um, so I've known about it for a real long time and uh, my love for it has only grown since being out here and, and working as the executive director. It is so easy to show up at work every day when, when you're passionate about something and so eternally grateful for, for the opportunity to, and so many times in my career, to be able to say that. So I'm grateful for program and, and my ability to, uh, to lead the second thing that's coming up for me is it's certainly not me, uh, you know, do, doing, doing all this work. We have an amazing team and, you know, we have a staff of about 24 people who are working together day in and day out to, to craft an experience and a program so that the volunteers can make the most of their, their time in the program and their year of, of volunteerism. If I had to boil down, like, what is JVC Northwest all about? I got to talk about the four core values. I mean, it's undergirds the whole experience. And for a volunteer for our, in our, both our JV program and, and for our Jesuit volunteer Encore uh, members who are 50 years or older doing some similar volunteerism and, and uh, reflection and discernment, it's an immersion for them in these values more than anything, right? That yes, they're immersed in um, a particular community, Spokane, Missoula, Hood River, like all these places in the, in the Northwest, right? But it's also an immersion in the four core values. And so they're living uh, in community. They're living in intentional community. And I can, I can talk about that. They're living simply. They're having to clear away a lot of the, the sort of luxuries and uh, conveniences that they've known their entire lives and uh, really live in simply and, and trying to listen to what's most important in their lives underneath that. They're thinking about spirituality and they're, they're wrestling with those questions, those spiritual questions in life. And then lastly, what you and I have already touched upon, they're, they're trying to ask questions about the world and questions of justice, questions of you know, how they can be of, of best service in that current year for sure, but, but maybe more importantly in the years after they're a volunteer. Thanks for sharing more about that. I, what comes to mind immediately when you talk about that is the importance of those mentors, those figures, those influencers in our life and how you guys are, again, you're shaping, you're shaping lives in, in, your, in the JVC work and, and all of these volunteers. Who is someone in your life who has shaped your life in a way and really helped you kind of develop your own values, who's someone you've looked to as, a, as a, a mentor, a figure, a friend that you really, who inspires you? Oh, great question. Who shall I pick is, is the real question. Early on, you know, my own father had a role like that. And I, I specifically think about the example he set in terms of someone who uh, lived uh, life with curiosity and a commitment to continuous improvement. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll never forget his, this, this concept he shared with me very early in my career. You know, he, he basically asked me like, you know, what are you gonna do to reinvent yourself? And uh, you know, that, that really stuck with me in my early to mid twenties as I was just getting started, you know, I had, had a job that I loved, but you know, could already at that point understand that like, you know, certain roles and, and positions for us have a shelf life and you've got you to gotta stay on that discernment path and pay attention really closely to life. Otherwise, you'll get stagnant. And the concept that he shared with me of, you know, how are you going to reinvent yourself just really stuck out to me. And, 
something that I've tried to, to pursue since then of what am I going to do to keep learning? What am I going to do to, to never settle for like good enough? You know, and yet there's a limit to that, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about perfectionism that our, that our culture purports, but, but there's, a, there's a happy medium in there where we're kind of hungry for some, something more. We're hungry to be better and do better in our lives uh, without the pressure of being perfect 100% of the time. So my dad, you know, was, uh, was a model of that for sure. And uh, yeah, that, that's one that I'll share. And you're that same, I, I mean, I guarantee you're that same model to your three kids. And I think that is one of the greatest gifts you're, you're giving them. Here's a follow-up to that. When you think of the word fulfilled, who comes to mind? Jeez. Um, I'm giving you the hard ones. Yeah, these are, you're like zingers here. I'll go down a different path with you here. I, I had a, my best friend in high school. A guy named Seth Mitchell. Here's a guy who also, in a very different way, tried to live a life of purpose. Seth chose the, the journey of, of going into the Marines and felt, felt called to do that in his own life to great consequence. And uh, you talk about self-sacrifice. He, he gave up quite a bit in his life to, to follow that journey and to follow what he, he understood as a calling you know, it eventually led him to, uh, even though his eyes, eyesight was not very good, he got fixed through surgery and uh, relatively late in his military career, applied for flight school and uh, was accepted. This is a great story, Patrick. He went to the Pentagon to deliver his application for the Marines because he didn't want it to get lost in the mail. I love that sense of drive and uh, determination from him. And, uh, you know, ultimately, sadly, it also, um, he sacrificed literally everything. He died in Afghanistan in, in 2009 uh, in a helicopter crash um, while he was uh, flying a mission over there. You know, I, I say him because um, he followed his, what was for him a dream. Now, he and I disagreed on some of the better avenues to pursue peace and justice in the world. But our friendship endured, and he was always a dear friend of mine, and he was loyal. He, he served in many different kinds of ways, the people around him. He served me, for sure, in our friendship. He bailed me out a lot. He was there for me a lot. You know, when I think about all that and the way he died, I think he, I think he was fulfilled. Certainly there were, you know, dreams probably that were unfulfilled when he, when he, did, when he did die, but you know, in terms of the arc of his journey, I think it, it was a, a fulfilling one for him. Thank you so much. As we're wrapping up this conversation today, it's been such, such a gift being with you today. I just have two final questions that I'm going to be kind of call to action, specific actions for our listeners who are touched by your words today. The first one, do you have any documentaries or movies about social justice that you think every human should watch at some time in their life? I'm not a huge watcher of, uh, of movies and documentaries. What about books? I will say this. Books and documentaries. I will say, um, on the documentary front, I will say Food Inc. for me was an important documentary. Imperfect but it was an important documentary because it got me thinking about our food system and how power and privilege has impacted our food systems 
in this world? And, and what is more fundamental to human life than the act of eating and, and drinking clean water? Uh, so I've been paying attention a lot to that kind of stuff in my, uh, in my journey. And, and so Food Inc. was some real good food for thought there. And then a book that's been a couple of, I'm going to give you two books that have been really important for me, but it's by the same author, a guy named Richard Rohr, Franciscan priest, founded the Center for Action and Contemplation down in uh, New Mexico. Richard Rohr has written a lot about spirituality, but also in particular men's spirituality, though I think a lot of what he says about men's spirituality has tons of crossover uh, across the gender spectrum. The two books are, uh, one specifically on men's spirituality is Adam's Return. That book woke me up in my early 20s and got me asking some pretty significant questions about how I was following the, a typical male journey in some unhealthy ways, even though I was quote unquote trying to do good in the world. That can be uh, a smokescreen in our lives at times, uh, a dangerous one at that. Um, so Adam's Return was powerful. And then another book by him, generally about con this, this concept of contemplation, which has become really important for me. And that book is called Everything Belongs, real short read, you know, really kind of shook me up and got me thinking about where I was in life at that moment and how I paid attention and what the spiritual journey was really all about. That gave me some food for thought to ponder again in my early to mid twenties that I'll forever be grateful for. That's fantastic. And I'd like to conclude today by asking you to share a phrase or a motto that guides you in the midst of adversity, especially on the days that aren't so easy to get out of bed. What do you think about in those moments? As a runner, as a marathoner, I got to go to that experience. And uh, I borrow this from my buddy who, who got me into running a number of years ago named Joe. He and I talk about this all the time. You got to run the mile you're in, you know, as a marathoner. So it can be real daunting to be thinking about miles 24, 25, and 26 throughout the race. And, uh, and if you're thinking about mile 25 and 26 and you're only in mile three or four, you're dead in the water. <laughs> and, um, you know, translating that to life, tempting to want to try to figure out everything, you know, for the next 10, 20 years of our lives. And really, you know, all we can do is faithfully run the mile that we're in, pay attention to what's right in front of us, and stay focused on that, and do it with great love, and, uh, and great self-sacrifice. And if we do that, uh, we'll get through that mile. And there will be another mile that we'll follow, to be sure. But uh, but we'll get through that mile that we're in. So just focus on it and uh, run the mile you're in, and uh, the rest will take care of itself. Fantastic. Hey, it's been a joy getting to talk to you today. Thank you. I loved it. Thanks for having me. Hopefully when things kind of go out of lockdown and pandemic and we figure all this out, we can we can get together in person, go for a run. You can you can teach me something. I love it, Patrick. Let's get out there and uh, put some miles in together.